We'll be reading today from Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. The church is the people of God who gather together for worship, and it is just a tremendous privilege to belong not only to Christ, but to you all. We belong to one another as we belong to Christ. Uh, what a joy it is to rejoice this morning together, to weep together, uh, all for the glory of Christ as family together. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, help us. To receive your mercies that are so I mean, plentifully given in your word. And may these words instruct us today. May we not approach your word as a passive audience, but as active worshipers. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be con- uh, encouraged. And glorify your name. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. One theologian said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's theologian Mike Tyson. I didn't say he was a good theologian. I just said everyone's a theologian in some way, right? Everyone has a belief about God. He happens to maybe not have a a theology that we would agree with wholeheartedly, but he, he, as a theologian, said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When you get punched in the mouth... That's when your, your fight or flight instincts start to kick in. You either start attacking or you, you run or you defend. Those kick in when you get punched in the mouth. So whatever plan you had probably was, was thrown out the window and you just kick into instinct mode. And Paul speaks to a church in Rome where he knows that there are going to be some punches thrown. Like they are going to get some, some punches in the mouth. And, and what he says is that there needs to be a plan for when those punches are thrown. That, that you don't have a plan until the punches are thrown. That actually what I can give you is a plan that will happen when the punches are thrown. And that plan is neither to attack or defend. There's no fight or flight, but it, it responds in the right kind of way. It responds in line with verse 1 of chapter 12, where all of life is meant to be a sacrifice to God, where we're offering all of ourselves, even all of our responses to punches in the mouth, anything that happens to us, as a sacrifice to the one true living God. And so because that's true, even those responses after we get punched in the mouth are to be something that's pleasing to God. And so in light of that, he says, you aren't just to throw out the plan. You're actually to not just receive the blow. You're actually to positively bless. With another series of commands, Paul is going to help Christians form the plan before the punches get thrown. We're hoping right now as they are gathered 
listening to this letter that he writes to them in Rome, that they're not throwing any punches in the moment, right? And so he's helping form them and fashion them to have a plan for when those punches start flying in the arena as they walk out from hearing this letter. And the same is true for us today. He wants us to have a plan in mind, ready to go for when we move out of this arena. Hopefully no punches are flying right now. We move out into the world that we are part of, in it, but not of it, right? And he wants us to be ready for when the punches start flying. And here's what he gives. This is kind of my summary of these commands, but here are all the commands. Do what is honorable, live peaceably, leave it to God, love your enemy, and overcome evil with good. Those are the commands he walks this church and realm through. Do what is honorable, live peaceably, leave it to God, love your enemy, and overcome evil with good. Sorry there's no alliteration or helpful memory technique there. It's just a lot of commands. And Paul has been dealing... In chapter 12, especially starting in verse 3, he's been dealing with marks of the community, marks of the local church, of the people of God together, and what they're supposed to look like in and among themselves. And with verse 17, he starts to turn, I think, right here, a bit to looking at how believers are to interact with the world, how they are to look outwardly and how to interact with the world. These are marks of the community to those who are outside. So he wrote to this church in Rome with an awareness of what that community was going to face. He had an awareness of their circumstances. And in the midst of their circumstances, he still says, you need to be all in with God, verse 1. Don't be conformed to this world, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the reason is, is because you're not, there is a world that you're in right now. There is a present age that you're swimming in. And in this present age, the, those who belong to Christ are to belong to one another they are to be marked rightly as a community, but that present age is an age that's going to have its fill of evil. In verse 9, he said, abhor what is evil because you have to. It's present. In verse 12, he's going to tell them, be patient in tribulation because there's going to be tribulation. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you because there's going to be those who persecute. Paul expects, as he writes to Christians, he expects mistreatment. He expects marginalization. He expects tribulations. He expects persecution. He expects various kinds of trials will face them in their lives. And he doesn't ignore it. The Bible is so clear and honest to the reality for which we face. And this present age is full of evil. And so Paul speaks to it. He, he doesn't just instruct sheep to live among sheep. He instructs sheep to live among wolves. And so in verse 17, that's what he's starting to do. Here's how you're going to live among wolves. He, he doesn't move uh, just from marks of the community to the outside, but he's moving a little bit more directly to instructing them in that capacity, right? It's not clear-cut lines in both, but it's a little bit more direct at relationships between Christians and those outside the Christian community. So verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. This present age and those of this present age will deal out evil. And Christians are going to receive evil treatment. And he says of them, when they receive evil treatment, that they're not to have a present age worldly response, but an otherworldly response. As those who are changed by, shaped by, moved along by the mercies of God, they are not to return, never to return, evil for evil. Evil. Paul knows the reality of this. Right? He himself 
faced evil, the evil of persecution, the evil of imprisonment, uh, wrong imprisonment, the, the evil of beatings, of slander and gossip. He, he was constantly one that people were trying to trash. He, he knew the, the evil of rejection, even wrong rejection. In, in the book of Hebrews, the, the author writes of, hey, you know yourselves, like you've let your goods be, your goods have been plundered. Or, or we could think of John chapter 16, verse 33, where, where Jesus says, in this world you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have trouble. Those in Christ are going to be mistreated, they're going to be maligned, they're going to be demeaned, they're going to be irritated by the evils of this world, they're going to be rejected. That's part of being in the world. All of that could be included in verse 17 as Paul says, don't return evil for evil, and much more. The repayment could be as various as the evil itself, right? The repayment could be unlimited. If you repay evil for evil, it just is whatever the evil is, you could repay in the same kind. And that's what Paul says not to do, actually. Don't repay evil for evil. Verse 7, chapter 13, he's going to say, pay to all what is owed. Same kind of word there. Like there's an idea of cost and repayment, actual value to it. He says, don't. Don't add up the cost. Because you're not going to repay it. And, and those words are really easy to say. And that's about where the easy stops in that, isn't it? Don't repay. Because likely the first response and impulse from someone who receives evil is to retaliate in the like way. You get a punch in the mouth. Maybe the first impulse is to punch someone back in the mouth. And Paul is assuming that there are punches that are going to be thrown. And he says, that's not when the plan goes out. That's actually when we start enacting the plan. And the plan is to not repay evil for evil. You're neither attacking nor defending. Instead of actively repaying evil for evil, here's what Paul says, verse 17. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Uh, it, it, there's this pattern that Paul's going to do here. He's going to move from the negative to the positive so many times. Like, don't do this. Speaks into the reality of sin. But here's what you need to positively do. Both are necessary. You're not just staying neutral. You're not just thinking of the negative. You're moving in a positive direction. And he says, here's the aim. Here's the thing you're going to give thought to. To do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, now when Paul says this, this is not a new idea. Right? You remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says... In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Maybe that was the first way that they would think about individuals receiving evil. Here's what we do in response. We, we get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus has said that. That was the law in the Old Testament for justice within Israel. And that was a law, though, that was not about individuals getting retribution for sins and crimes done against them. That was the law that was to help govern them as a society, as a people of God, right? It wasn't about individual retribution, and so they misapplied it oftentimes in that same way. He says, you've heard it said, and maybe even you're hearing it applied, that when someone you know, hits you in the eye, you hit them back in the eye. He's like, that wasn't the point in the first place, exactly. It was meant to be a limit to the amount of justice that could be enacted, not by individuals, but by others, right, within the people of God. But he says, you've heard that. Here's what I'm going to say to you, verse 39. Don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. There's the positive, not just a negative, don't do something. Here's the positive, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and the good, and he sends out rain on the just and on the unjust. And for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Who are Christians then to, to love and seek the good of? Not just the ones that are close to them, their neighbors, or even the ones that they would consider distant and far off, the ones that they would consider enemies. He says, if you consider them and you put them in that category, then you love them. If you don't put them in that category, then, then they must be neighbor. And what are you to do with them? You're to love them. So here we have these Christians that are to be people of love. Love for neighbor, even love for enemies. They're to seek the good of them. And I think that love for neighbor, love for enemies, is what informs Paul when he says... You need to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of who? In the sight of all. All. He uses a similar phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21. Very parallel way of putting it. He says, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Or he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verse 15, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, Christian community, and to who else? Well, to everyone. So Paul has in mind here when he says, Don't repay evil for evil, seek to do what is, give thought to, aim for what is honorable in the sight of all. He has in mind here, not just the Christian community, but those outside of it, even unbelievers, those maybe you would consider enemies. And he knows that that is part of the audience here. And he implies in this is that in some way, those that are outside can recognize and identify something that is honorable. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, we find David in a cave. He's on the run because the king of Israel, Saul, is a, a wicked king at this point. He's trying to kill David because of his jealousy. And so David is living on the fringes, and he's in this cave. And in this cave, Saul is chasing him, and Saul doesn't know that he's there and comes into this cave to relieve himself. And all of David's people are like, now's your chance. You can get rid of your enemy now. Right? He doesn't do that while Saul is taking care of business. He actually just cuts off a piece of his garment. And, and listen to what happens when David who clearly could have killed him, spares him. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 16, David speaks to Saul, and he told him, like, I didn't kill you. Why are you pursuing me? And listen to what Saul said. He says, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Twisted Saul, corrupt Saul, bent on evil Saul, recognized David's good, that he had repaid him good for the evil that he had given to him. So even someone that's, again, not seeking the will of God, not trying to live under God's good word and law, not trying to live in God's ways, looks at something that happens to him and he recognizes that that is honorable, that is good, you're actually more honorable than me. And I think Paul has that same kind of point in mind when he says, do what, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. All. 
Now, the all don't prescribe what's honorable. We get that from God and His Word, right? But the all do recognize what is honorable here, especially when evil is not repaid for evil. When, when you repay evil with good, they can see it as honorable. And the idea is when you, when you give not repayment of evil for evil, but good for evil, the idea isn't for the individual who does the good to receive the honor. A lot more like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, Let your good deeds shine before men that they might see them and they might give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says something similar. Well schooled in the school of Jesus. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or in verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? The, the audience is broad, and yet there's still this sense of recognition of something being honorable, and the glory goes to God. And so Paul says to Christians, Christians, that ought to be your plan. That's your aim that's what you're to give thought to before you're even punched. Give thought to think, how can I do what's honorable in the sight of all? And so how can we do this? Well, the first thing is to, to try to be honorable in all of our ways, right? We, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do it all to the glory of God. Not so that we are noticed and receive honor, but so that God receives honor. And if we're honest, we can do a lot of work just there. <laughs> I mean, that's not what Paul's talking about here, but, but we can do a lot of work on just being and doing what is honorable, period. Apart from evil done to us or not. Like, think about how you handle people in traffic when they cut you off. Are you doing what's honorable? Even when that's not a sin. That's not an evil, right, necessarily? Or maybe it could be, I don't know. Your, your lines on traffic might get a little blurry of what's sin and what's not sin there. Right, but that's not a place that's reserved from our sanctification. Or think about how you interact with someone in a meeting. Like, just because they don't sin against you, they say something you don't like, or you're acting in a way that you would think would be honorable before them, that might give glory to God, or think about how you interact on, on social media, like what happens and what's received and what's sent, are those things that are just honorable in general apart from evils that are being done. Because what happens is, is that we can be far too touchy, far too quick to be a victim, way too easily offended, too thin-skinned, and not act honorably, period. But Paul asks us, asks us to go a little bit further, doesn't he? He, he wants us to give thought to not how to respond to things that aren't actual evil, although we need work there. He, he says, give thought to how do you respond when actual evil is done to you, assuming that it will be done to you. The, the world would say, here's what you do with evil. You repay it. You, you tear that person down. Maybe you threaten them. Like you, you seek their harm. And too often we can be people who entertain those thoughts. Maybe even rehearse those thoughts. You ever done that? Now, what would it be like if I could get back with them? Get back at them. But Christians are those who aren't conformed to this present age, but are transformed by the renewal of our minds. And our mind starts to be renewed, and this renewal starts happening. I start to plan not how I can get even with people, but how I can do what's honorable in the sight of all people because I care about the honor and glory of God. And so the how you do this comes into mind when you start being transformed, when it's renewed. And you start to be equipped and informed by the Word of God so that you can actually plan and strategize and start to rehearse how you can do what's honorable in the sight of all. You, you might think of what Jesus said. He said to go the second mile, right? If they want this, give them this. 
Give them extra. Go above and beyond even. Or, or you could be like David. What does David do in the face of evil that's done to him? He actually affirms, hey, Saul, I'm not trying to kill you. You're the Lord's anointed. I'm not lifting my hand against you because I care about him. I'm for you, actually. Or you could look at Peter, or Paul when he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He talks about how people left him. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. That's a rough evil done to him. And what does he say? Don't charge it against him. You look at the book of Acts. The disciples of Christ face all kinds of evil done to them. And they don't repay evil for evil. They don't become jerks. They don't get mad. They don't start threatening people. Like, you're going to do this, I'm going to threaten you in some way, I'm going to hold it over you. So they don't complain, they do speak the truth in love, that they do what verse 12 told them to do. They're patient in tribulation, they're rejoicing in the hope of the glory they have, they're constant in prayer. That's what they do in the book of Acts. And what we can do is we can let that word fill our minds, transform our minds, renew our minds, so that we can be filled with those kind of responses. So when we walk into the meeting, and we're tempted to threaten somebody, or to make a power play on somebody, or to speak evil of somebody, or to lie, or to gossip, or to any other things, or to physically punch somebody. When we get on the internet and we think no one will know, it'll be anonymous, I'll just type it in here, here's evil for evil. When we know we have this plan, when we get punched, we know what we can do because we've been filling our minds with the right things, and what we can do is we can start acting honorably in the sight of all. Because responding to evil with evil is what Paul says you should not do. And responding to evil is part of our verse one, right? Part of our giving everything, including our responses to evil, part of presenting our life as a sacrifice to God. And to that sacrifice that we're offering up to God, there's a public witness attached to our response to when evil is done to us. And the witness that should be pulsing forward from Christians when evil is done to them is that they will not repay it. But they will instead seek to do what is honorable. We keep doing evil to them. They keep doing honorably to us. Indeed, Paul goes a step further. Verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Christians are those who know the peace of God. Right? We know the peace of God. And that peace with God does not depend on our actions, but on His. You, you remember what Paul has laid down in the gospel is that what landed upon you and should land upon you is the wrath of God, the judgment of God, but it was turned aside in Christ Jesus. So that if you're in Christ Jesus, you can rejoice because you now have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Access it with God. Because God has made peace with you. And if God has made peace with you through his son Jesus, that then frees you to live peaceably. And notice who this extends to, he says, if possible, live peaceably with all again. Oh, one commentator says that, that one of the marks of Christians is a winsome and friendly spirit that delights in peace and harmony, not arguments and division. Christians should not be those who are mean, who are pugnacious and argumentative. Christians should not be those as known who always have the gloves on ready for a fight, but, but I guess in a sense always have the doves ready to let loose to make peace. You know, I, I don't know about the imagery there, but we ought to be those who are eager to be at peace with all people. And so one of the questions is, do you delight in peace? 
One, because you have it with God now through Christ Jesus, and now you can experience, once you've experienced that peace with God, it starts to, you know, want to get outside of you, and you want to experience with others. That starts within the community, and Paul says it just keeps on flowing. And so do you desire peace? Do you delight in peace? If not, then we need to say, you might need peace with God. You might not be at peace with Him, and that's going to lead to all sorts of unrest with others, within the community and outside the community. Start with peace with God. But if you do delight and desire peace, then here's what Paul's saying. Give some effort to living peaceably with all. The start of that might be just gaining some wisdom. Right? In verse 16, he told us, never be wise in your own sight. So we know we're, we're lacking. We, we need some wisdom. And so what we need to do is we look for it. We ask for it. Where is it? And one of the places that God has given us so richly for wisdom is the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs has all kinds of practical wisdom for how to avoid living in strife. And how to live in peace. It starts with the fear of the Lord. First, being in all of Him. Wanting to live under His good reign and commands. That's the fear of the Lord. He, he says, actually, what you need to do if you're living in fear of the Lord is you need to put away anger. That stirs up all kinds of strife within individuals and within relationships. You need to watch your words. And so he says stuff like, hey, don't answer a fool in his folly. Or, or that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Don't give yourself to gossip. That's going to stir up all sorts of, of controversy or lying. He says all kinds of things about how we use our words, and that's a, a key way to avoid things that would cause strife inside and outside of the community. But he says over and over again, here's what you need to do. Get wisdom. Get it. And the wisdom that we get from God is what James chapter 3, verse 17 says. It's, it's first, it's peaceable. It's, it's gentle kind of peace. Right? It, it's open to reason. It's full of mercy. That's the kind of wisdom that God can give. Paul seems to have those kind of categories in mind when he thinks about being at peace with all men. But verse 17 tells us that sometimes there's going to be evil done to us. And so we're not just talking about avoiding strife and controversy and conflict. That, sometimes that's going to be enacted upon us whether we want it or not. And so in the middle of that kind of stuff... What are Christians to do to live peaceably in that circumstance, in that arena? The nature of what Paul seems to be saying shows that Paul intends for Christians to be the ones who take initiative in making peace. The ones who go first in making peace. Not the ones who are taking initiative to be right or to prove a point or to get even, but the ones who are first to move toward peace. Be the first to acknowledge the problem. Be the first to extend grace. Be the first who would offer out forgiveness. Be the first to make the move toward peace. How many experiences within a relationship have you had of cold stalemates because no one will make a move? Right? Have you experienced that within relationships? Like something has happened. Likely it maybe not even have been an evil, just some sort of offense has taken place and you just don't want to move because we're stuck in our pride and we just say, no, I'm going to let them move first. And the other person say, I'm going to let them move first. Paul says, Christian, move first. Get out of the stalemate. Be the first to step to the other with peace. Now, I know when I've even sinfully been in those places where I'm like, I'm not moving first. And when someone takes the first move toward me, what often happens is that whatever was hardening my heart just melts away. And I don't even remember what the thing was about in the first place. There's some wisdom in that. Paul says, Christians, be the first to do those kinds of things. Step toward one another. 
You are one who has peace with God. You believe what Jesus says when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so you should be the ones who first move in that direction. That's the blessed life. What Paul doesn't do here when he says this is he's not laying the blame for strife and contention at the feet of Christians here. He just says to, if it's as far as it's possible for you, you need to be at peace with all people. He might even have in mind, the person that has done the evil is 99% at fault for what has happened here. That might be in view. But Christian, if there's 1%, why don't you move that 1%. That's the idea. Can you own that 1%? Can you move toward peace in that 1%? He says, if possible, own whatever part is yours and move toward peace. And if there's no part is yours, then we have words for that as well. One author said this, that even if that 1% is true, he said, first, you should look to see if there is a kernel of truth, even in the most exaggerated and unfair broadsides. It's a good place to start. Let's figure this out. Is there even a sliver of truth in this? And so even if the censure is partly or even largely mistaken, look for what you may indeed have done wrong. Perhaps you simply acted or spoke in a way that was not circumspect, right? There's all sorts of wisdom about that, how you used your words, the demeanor, and all these things that may have helped avoid the conflict. Maybe the critic is partly right for the wrong reasons, Nevertheless, identify your own shortcomings, repent in your own heart before the Lord for what you can, and let that humble you. It will then be possible to learn from the criticism and to stay gracious to the critic, even if you have to disagree with what he or she has said. And that's what Paul wants. Are you still able to move toward them in peace? As far as it depends upon you, that should be your demeanor, moving toward them in peace. Are you still in this gracious disposition even toward those who have done evil to you? Look for the kernels of truth and maybe what's happened. Own what is yours. Turn from what is yours and seek peace with others. And the goal, again, is not to win, not to be right, not to let them know that they're 99% at fault and you're only 1% at fault. The goal is peace. And that can be the goal because we have peace with God. The, the, the peace that we most needed, we received from God through Christ. So now we are free because the one we most need peace with has given us peace. We're now free to move and be at peace with those around us. So church, when thinking of verse 18, do names come to mind? Did a face come up when we start thinking about live peaceably with all? Now here's what we need to do. We need to plan to step or move in their direction with this desire and goal of peace. Now, Paul admits here, I think, that it's not all on us. It might be 1% on us, 99% on them. But let's move into that 1% with a word, with a letter, right? with a conversation. We need to use whatever means we can that are within our power to move towards peace. This idea that he's getting at here is that we be intentional and that we make efforts to and use whatever power within our means possible to move to have peace with these individuals. And this doesn't mean that if we're doing that, that we're going to excuse what they've done, that we're denying their sin, that we're abandoning the cause of justice that we now can fully trust them or that we expect that there's going to be full reconciliation. It doesn't mean all that. Paul leaves that and says that might not be possible. But as far as it's possible for you to be at peace, you need to do it. He, he knows that there are some circumstances where it may not be possible to be at peace. Christians are to obey God, not man. 
So for us to cave on truth and, and things that we know to be true from God, we, we can't do that. And so if that's what's causing the strife, then we're going to stay in strife. He, he knows that, that some of that peace may not be reciprocated. You might move the 1% and the 99% is, is stood firm in their position. They may not move towards you at all. He knows that it might not be reciprocated. That's okay. He says you still need to do what's honorable in the sight of all. You still need to do whatever is possible to be at peace with all. Maybe it's with such a category where the, it's not reciprocated that, that Paul moves to verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Oh, what, a, what a difficult command, right? Leave it to the Lord. Perhaps the difficulty uh, leads him to encourage a little bit here, right? Beloved, guys, I know. I know. Get it. It's hard. So he gives them this word of assurance, beloved. And he says, leave it to the wrath of God. God's wrath represents, as one author says, rather God's hatred of sin, hatred of wrongdoing, the other antagonism of his holiness to sin, his righteous anger against this rebellious power that has entered into the world and life and which has wrought such havoc among his creatures. God's wrath, another says, is not just his lost, not, is not lost temper, but his holiness released judicially against evil. When we speak of God's wrath, we're not talking about a God who flies off the handle. We're talking about his wrath that is right and necessary reaction for evil for him to be holy. I love that thought that it's his holiness released. He, he can't be loving and can't be for good if he doesn't hate evil. Those don't go together. Can't be okay with evil and love good. Right? We saw this earlier. He says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Those go together. And they go together perfectly in God. This is why God is a God who we can say God is love. And we can say that God has wrath. Because he is love, he must have wrath. His love necessitates it. Because he couldn't be for evil if he is love. And so Paul says you need to leave it to the wrath of God. He doesn't instruct us to call down the wrath of God, right? He doesn't say, hope for the wrath of God upon that wicked sinner. He says, give a place for it. That's, that's what he's getting at. Leave it to, give a place to, give a place for the wrath of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy because he, like all of us, loves that book. He meditates on it. And he quotes Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What an assurance, actually, here. It sounds like a hard verse, but it, this is a blessed assurance of God's justice. In the face of harm, in the face of real evil, think of the atrocities that the people have God faced throughout history. They're great. And he says in the midst of that, give place to the wrath of God. You can entrust those things to the wrath of God, that he is going to take care of these things. God is the one, he says, who is going to set all accounts right before this God, the one that you serve and have offered your body your entire life as a sacrifice to. Before that God, no injustice will remain. And because that's true, never avenge yourselves. Uh, among the beloved, there's to be no avengers. I, I know that's disappointing to some, right? There's no avengers in our midst. Or there aren't to be. I guess if there were, then we'd need to work toward them in peace as well and tell them we don't need to avenge. 
But he says, beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, what, what the beloved do are, are those who give place to, give space to the wrath of God. The, the world would say, hey, don't get mad, get even. And that's not a Christian slogan. Paul says, never here. Never avenge yourselves. That never speaks right into all the atrocities that have been faced by the people of God throughout history. That never speaks right into the very real feeling that I should do something to get back at this person for doing what they've done. Rather, to me or to another Christian, right? There's this really sense of justice that's part of being in the image of God that wells up in us. It has this feeling like if they do such atrocities to the people of God, they need to face wrath. And we start to give breath to rehearsing those thoughts, don't we? When you think about our culture, revenge stories are well celebrated. Gladiator? And who's not for that guy? He got wrongly, you know, trapped, and you know, they were going to kill him, and he gets away, and they kill his family. And it's like, get even, dude. And the whole movie, you're, you're cheering him on so that he might get his chance or taken, or the Count of Monte Cristo, right? The Count of Monte Cristo, he gets wrongly enslaved, and he's in this, this prison for years. He finally gets out, and he gets his chance to like, fully and finally repay the evils that are done to him, and he gives this great line. He says, how did I escape with great difficulty? How did I plan this moment where he's going to finally get his revenge? He says, with pleasure, and we're like, yeah, get it, you know, like, He's earned it, right? He spent years in prison. In one of the worst places on earth. Like he's earned the right to get even, right? But God's people respond differently. Now think of Joseph. Here's a man who's a victim of some pretty atrocious sin. First they wanted to kill him. Finally they, they kind of went down from killing him, just throwing him in a well and selling him into slavery. Awful. And then they come and they have to grovel before him because he's in charge in Egypt and, and they're about to die from starvation. Here's your chance, Joseph. Get even. And what does he do? Does he make his brothers pay? No. Or you think about Paul. Again, we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul faced his fair share of evils and, and one of them had a name. Alexander, the coppersmith. Here's what he says of him. He, he did me great harm. But looks what he gives a place for. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And look what he does. He doesn't malign him. He doesn't attack him. He just says, beware of him. Might want to avoid him. What Paul does here is that he doesn't even sin with his words. Here's a man that did him great harm. He says, he doesn't even elaborate. When people do us great harm, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you all that they did so that you know just how terrible they really are. Paul just says he did me harm. Lord will deal with that. Just watch out. Doesn't sin with his words. He acknowledges the harm that's actually done, and then he just hands it over to the Lord. When we follow verse 19, when we say we're not going to avenge ourselves, never. Not just that we won't do it, but it's unthinkable to us. That's, that's what Paul's getting at with never, right? It's unthinkable that we should move toward avenging ourselves. And when we leave it to the wrath of God, when we know that vengeance is God, vengeance is God's and not our own, what this does is it doesn't ignore evil. It doesn't erase the harm that's done. It doesn't do any of that. 
it just entrusts it to the judge. It entrusts it to God's justice. And that justice includes his wrath upon sin. Paul doesn't release Christians from judgment, right? He, he needs them to be able to identify actions as actually evil, actually causing harm. But what he does release them from is being the capital J judge over those things, as if they're in charge of how this now plays out. The pressure is off, Christian. You're not in charge of an exacting justice. You're not even to be the judge. What a relief. We do it imperfectly. But there is a judge, and that judge can be trusted. Jesus, he did this when he faced the cross. The, the words of Peter tell us so clearly. 1 Peter chapter 2, how Jesus faced this. Verse, chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he re, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The one who has called us to follow him. So he says, beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. We can leave it to the wrath of God. Give place for the wrath of God because we can trust this judge. Christians are those who know the gospel. That his wrath was upon us. That we were under the wrath of God. And what happened? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, turning away the wrath of God. So that God, for those who trust in Jesus, might be just and the justifier. Right? He's still just. He knows how to show non-justice, but he is just in those who have trusted in Jesus. Because his justice has been poured out on another. And so he's just and the justifier, and it's that very gospel that reminds us that God doesn't let sin go. He didn't let it go on our account. If we're in Christ, that account was paid for by Christ, and he's never going to let sin go, right? He is a just God, and because he is a just God, we can trust him even when evil is done to us, and we want to avenge ourselves. We can say, no, our God is just. He is the judge, and we can know with great assurance that in the end, no injustice will remain. It will either be poured out on the cross or in hell. Either way, no injustice remains in the end. Because that's true, we can say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. To trust this truth is in part to obey, verse 19, not avenge yourselves and give place to God's wrath when evil is done to us. And it's that very truth that then frees us to not only never seek to avenge ourselves, but to actually move in the other direction, right? Verse 20, he says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who faced his share of evil at the hands of the, the Nazis, right? Standing up for truth and right things. Here's what he said. He says, and he wrote this from prison. He's imprisoned by the Nazis, and here's what he said. It is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. There's a real reality here that if we just erase God's wrath, that we're not going to live into rightly. The real reality that God hates sin and that he has to hate sin, it's a release of his holiness. And when we know that God's wrath is chapter 1, verse 18, uh, 
on all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, then all of a sudden we can start to, if we now have that wrath removed from us, start to move in love toward others. Because we see the grim reality of God's wrath that's over others. And that's exactly what Paul wants to touch the hearts of his readers. That's why he says, to the contrary, don't seek vengeance. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. He wants their hearts to be so touched by, moved by, the, the enmity that's been removed between them and God, the peace that they now experience with God, and the reality of that wrath that's been removed but not been removed for others, to move them in love to others. And this love meets these enemies with good. If they're hungry, you feed them. Right? If they're, they're thirsty, you, you give them something to drink. The idea there is that you're not withholding. It seems like nothing, like, all right, my enemy is here, and I'm not going to hurt him. I'm certainly not going to give him something to drink. And Paul says, actually, meet him with the, the water and the food. Don't just not hurt them. You, you positively love them is what he says. Paul says, don't just let the water pass by when they're thirsty. You need to give it to them, meet them with whatever needs that they have. That's what you're to do, to do good. Not just to you know, kind of negatively not do evil, but to positively love them. It's very much like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? They take, go one mile. What do you do? Go the second. If they want to, you're close, give them your tunic. Love your enemy. I'm reminded of, of Les Mis. You might have seen the movie or the musical. Jean Valjean, he's the criminal. And, and he comes to stay at a bishop's house. And, and during the middle of the night, he takes all the silver. And sometime in the day, he's arrested. They find him and they say, this is silver. You don't look like anybody's going to have silver. You're clearly in the wrong here. And they find out where he's been staying and they take him back to the bishop. And the bishop says, hey, you, there's, there's got to be a mistake. Because, not because he says, hey, this, this guy has something that doesn't belong to him. He's like, you forgot the candlesticks. Remember that? He, he doesn't say, hey, how dare you steal from me? He's like, actually, you forgot some silver. It's still here. He, he doesn't just say, All right, just let it go. Charge it to my account. He said, actually, I'm going to give him some more. And in this story, it talks about how Jean Valjean was just shaking with that reality. Transformed by it. And Paul calls Christians to do things like that. Not just to not do evil, but to positively love and to do good. How can we do that? How can we move toward people that are our enemies? Now, I was helped by one author when he said this. He said, we should not try to love that person who has just cursed us or who have hurt us, who has taken something we value and scorned us and looked down upon us, like done some sort of evil to us. We should train to become the kind of person who would love them. Isn't that what Paul's been saying in verse 1 and 2? Present your life as a sacrifice to God. Don't be conformed to this present age. Be transformed by renewal of your mind. He, he doesn't have enemies or individuals in mind there. He says you need to be start doing this work of training yourself to be a person whose all of life is all in with God and says I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I'm, I'm transformed. I'm thinking about everything differently so that when I meet the enemy, different things come out. And that's what he says. Only then... Can the ideal of love pass into a real possibility and practice? Our aim under love is not to be loving to this or that person or in this or that kind of situation, but to be a person possessed by love as an overall character of life. And our response to the specific occasions when we are to act flow out of our overall character. He says, I do not come to my enemies and then try to love them. I come to them as a loving person, the good tree bearing good fruit. 
You want to love your enemies? It doesn't start with just that name and that face. It starts with saying, I want to be a loving person, God. Transform me by the renewal of my minds, by the mercies that you have given to me. Let that be transforming in my life that I might then not just be loving toward that enemy, but be a loving person so that when that enemy comes around, and they will, they start throwing punches. I can be that kind of person that doesn't say, I'm just going to not do evil. I can be moving toward them in love, trying to make peace with them. We continue to go back to verses 1 and 2 thinking about the mercies that God sent our direction, met us with. We continue to go back to this place where we're renewing our mind. We're not swimming the, the present age's uh, messages of, of don't get mad, get even, where we keep thinking, what, what would God have me do? How would he have me live? What kind of person would he have me be? And the results, verse 20, when we do this, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we need to be careful with motives here, right? It's like, yes, I'm going to positively do good that evil might come on him, right? Or that harm might come on him. I'm going to do what I can so that he might get burning coals heaped on his head. We need to be careful with motives, right? The motive is not to bring vengeance. We're not trying to avenge. We already left that in verse 19, right? Never unthinkable in our minds. As we have renewed minds, it's unthinkable to us now. We are leaving that to God. We have entrusted that vengeance to God. No, the motive is different. The motive is their good, positively loving them. And when that's the motive, the motive isn't to get something harmful to happen to them by response to our good. And it seems like what Paul is getting at here when he says this is that the very act of doing good, the very act of moving toward them as love, is in a way a form of God's punishment upon the evildoer. Now, I don't understand all the psychology of that. It might come in in the form of of shame and guilt by the other. But in some way, returning good when evil has been done is a form of God's punishment for the evildoer. And it's in these kinds of ways that Christians can do what verse 21 says. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. The, The evil of enemies. And and the things that have been inflicted on the people of God, here's what Paul says, they do not have to win. Following the commands of verses 17 through 20, of repaying no one evil for evil, giving thought to do what is honorable, to living peaceably, to never avenging ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God, to feed our enemy, to give him a drink, All those are ways that means of overcoming evil with good. And he says, church, that's for you. Don't be. He's saying that the power is there to not be overcome with evil, but instead to overcome evil with good. In Christ, evil can be overcome by good. Because in Christ, Christians... like. We have all the good we will ever need. We have all the justice that we will ever need. In Christ, we have all the assurance that God is trustworthy that we will ever need. And one way to live in these verses, in these commands, is to continue to remember how Jesus overcame evil with good. And that Jesus... Although he has done that, the story continues, but there's a period that's going to be placed on that one day. That we don't just remember that Jesus came and he overcame evil with good. We don't want to live as those who don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. He overcame evil with good, but we're also remembering how he will overcome evil with good. So we 
think about how we overcome evil with good by thinking about and remembering the personal work of Jesus, what he has done and what he will do. And not only do we remember it, but we apply it individually to our lives. And one way that we do that, that we might live in the freedom that he has bought for us of overcoming evil with good is by remembering the Lord's Supper. So simple the act, so faithful the obedience, so profound the truths that it implies, right? He's overcome evil by good. I get a part of that. By I trust in him. And he will overcome. And we look forward to the day that he will overcome evil by good. And it, and it won't take much, will it? He's going to rip open the sky in just a breath and boom. No injustice remains. And if you're in Christ, that's the reality you get to live into right now. And you even appropriate it individually. Like, and he wants us to do this in remembrance of me. Take this bread. Take this cup. Remember what I have bought for you. That you have now been included in my family where evil will no longer exist one day. If you're in Christ, come take this meal. Remember what Christ has done. If you're not in Christ, we have to say that, that God is a God of justice. That in the end, no injustice will remain. That the wrath of God remains upon us in our sin. And that the only way to, be, uh, to escape the wrath of God is through the person of Jesus. And so, we want you to know God is both just and the justifier. And we say, believe in Jesus. Don't take this meal. Believe in the one who can save you from the wrath of God, Jesus Christ, his son. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we are not like you. You can say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We are so gracious toward ourselves, and we are so hard on other people. We want justice done to others. And we want grace and forgiveness. But we're slow, slow to forgive it. Sometimes in big ways that have tarnished and destroyed relationships over years and years. And sometimes just in small ways driving down the road furious that someone could drive so foolishly in front of us and impede our seconds. We're not like you. We're not ready to die for people who hate us. And we think other people's sin is worse, far worse than ours. And that's not true. We drink from a cup and remember your blood, and we eat bread and remember your body that was broken, not for somebody else that's really bad, but for us, for our sin, for our hatred and our anger and our selfishness, our pride. That's why you gave your body to be broken because we are sinful and you did that for us. 
while we were your enemies. When we hated you. And we're frustrated today at our sin and our falling short of your word. But we also have hope because we know that you didn't just pay for our sins on the cross and give us forgiveness, but you also sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us and to sanctify us, make us holy, and look more and more like you every day, Jesus. And we know you knew who we were before, and you know who we are now, and you are not finished with us. You are going to change us into the image of your Son. And so I pray, God, that that would go more quickly. Pray that we would have the humility to respond to this sermon. Dylan mentioned faces flying through our minds of people that we've wronged or that we think have wronged us. And I pray that we would search our hearts and find what's true and that we would move toward peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that we would move toward peace with those who don't know you at all and would probably even be shocked by the whole idea of real repentance and forgiveness. To see that in somebody is strange because paying people back is what is normal. It is our sinful instinct, God, and you you desire a different thing in your sons and daughters. And we're able to do it. You don't give us commands that we can't obey. We have everything that we need to live this way. So change our hearts, God. Thank you so much for forgiving us for our wickedness. Thank you for giving us grace. Help us give grace to others. In your name I pray. Amen.